Adults keep saying, we owe it to the young people to give them hope. It's beyond time to take action on climate change. But I don't want your hope. Right now, federal governments are failing to act. The city of Miami Beach is declaring a climate change emergency. So the politicians in this building can literally look out their windows and on some days see sea level rise. None of this is a coincidence. I want you to panic. Climate change is a consequence. We are in one of the frontline communities facing the climate crisis, and it is time that we speak up for our residents that are being hurt. Just from a quick little rain we got. I wanted to act as if the house was on fire, because it is. I first became involved with the Clio Institute almost a year ago, once I started learning about the urgency that the climate crisis needed from young people and amounted to my own school walkout. So as a student at FIU, I study environmental science and in all my classes, climate change is sort of touched upon at the end. And I started to realize that no other issue is more ultimate than the climate crisis. And about a year ago also, I became involved with Clio because I attended their community climate symposium. In comparison to many of the cities around the world, we are, if not the most, one of the cities that will be affected detrimentally by the climate crisis. So we're talking about sea level rise, saltwater intrusion, intensified hurricanes, losing our access to safe drinking water. So being ground zero for climate change means that we are in a lot of danger and we don't have any time to really waste as a city in comparison to others especially. We're doing this because we feel that no matter how much the youth actually rose up and tackled the problem of climate change in 2019, we aren't necessarily getting the fruitful effects out to the public and the solutions and the knowledge that is needed to cultivate meaningful change. Therefore, House on Fire will act as a catalyst, not only locally in Miami, a ground zero community as Gabby spoke about, but hopefully internationally to inspire a sense of justice and knowledge among the people who will be impacted by climate change, which is frankly, everyone. There is no resilience in Miami specifically or, or other cities in this country unless everybody has a basic understanding of the crisis. Caroline Lewis founded the Clio Institute 10 years ago. She was a former science teacher and principal and she was also the director of education at Fairchild. Additionally, Caroline mostly dedicates her time now to empowering young people not only with the knowledge, but the leadership necessary to take on the climate crisis. She sometimes sets aside her impressive accolades being recognized by the White House, the EPA, and the Energy Council to give 100% of her leadership and knowledge to young people in Miami to enact meaningful change in their communities. Hi, Caroline. Well, hello, John Paul. Hi, Caroline. Hi, Gabby. Caroline, can you just start off by telling us a bit about your role at Clio? Right. So um, I'm the founder of the Clio Institute, and Clio was founded in 2010 with the sole purpose of building climate leadership. I'm a science teacher and a high school principal by trade, and the data was so alarming that I felt I had to do something to sort of energize the lay public around the science. 
how do you feel or why do you feel that education is a catalyst for empowerment? Are there any specific examples that led you to that? I really believe in the power of young people to influence change. But I believe in the ability of all individuals to influence change. And if you want them to influence change for the right reasons and in the right direction, you need to give them context. So education that not just fills a pail, but lights a fire in people is a type of education we want at the Clio Institute to be able to not just educate, but engage them, have them become passionate, eloquent, fact-based speakers on the urgent issue of the climate crisis. Can you break the climate science down for us, please? Sure. It, it really asks us to think about the Earth, the planet, as this orb, like all other planets are, and all planets have an atmosphere around them. And it is the composition of the atmosphere around all the planets that make them livable or unlivable as we understand life. And Earth has an atmosphere that allows us to live on it. So in the atmosphere, 99% are harmless molecules of oxygen and nitrogen. And 1% are all these other molecules. And some of these are greenhouse gases. So the fact that Earth has greenhouse gases in its makeup of its atmosphere is a very good thing. It means that some of the heat that is coming in during the day that is trying to get out is trapped so that the Earth holds in some of that heat. If every drop of energy that enters the Earth exits the Earth, we'd be a frozen planet. And there are planets like that. So if you have... The opposite, if you have an atmosphere that's too rich in these heat-trapping greenhouse gases, then all that energy coming in, too much of it is trapped instead of going back out, and you have a, a planet on fire. The problem has become that in my lifetime, and I'm a young 50-something-year-old, in my lifetime, the number of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere has doubled, or almost, or actually gone up by a, more than 100 parts per million. That's dangerous. So now instead of a nice balance where some of that outgoing heat is being trapped, too much of that outgoing heat is being trapped. And so the problem is greenhouse gases are a good thing, but having too many greenhouse gases is not a good thing. So how did we get to that point where we have too many, too much greenhouse gases in our atmosphere now? So the source of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere comes from stored carbon, Billions of years old, oil, coal, and gas are dead living organisms from billions of years ago. Microorganisms, plants, animals, and everything. So when we use those fuels, oil and coal and gas, to burn them to get the energy to build buildings and make clothing and furniture and live like we live, one of the waste products of burning oil, coal, and gas are greenhouse gases carbon dioxide, methane, and quite a few others. And so we have been taking stored carbon that has taken billions of years to form, and in a matter of a couple hundred years, using up a ton of it and releasing so many more of those greenhouse gases in a short, a relatively short period of time. And so we, as a species, have heavily influenced this planet, you would say. Right. We call this particular warming period anthropogenic. This is anthropogenic global warming, which simply means human cause, 
Anthropology, Study of Humans, Genesis, Origin. So it's a human origin of global warming that's happening now. And it's not part of a normal cycle. When you look at the geologic record of the changes in greenhouse gases, where we are right now is is spinning out of a cycle. So we're actually, the rate at which the greenhouse gases are increasing is nothing we've ever experienced. So as a species, if we've pumped these heavy amounts of carbon into our atmosphere, decimated our natural resources, what can we expect as a result? A much warmer world, a much warmer ocean, um, rapid ice melt, um, saltwater intrusion, food and water vulnerability, migration changes because of too much water in some areas and too little water in some areas. So the economy of most countries changes on what they can grow, what they can eat and what they can do. Mm-hmm. Now, we've spoken about the effects of a climate crisis, but what is a frontline community? Is ours a frontline community? Frontline communities is a term we use to describe those that will be first affected by the change that's happening. And frontline communities really speak of the poor. They speak of the people who do not have resources to prepare for or recover from the climate disruptions that we're already facing. Frontline communities are always those, like whether you're poor or not living in Miami, you're the first to experience it. So having the shifting populations in Miami move from low ground to higher ground, that's all part of a frontline community behavior, having to be more for insurance if you're in low-lying areas. So frontline communities are like the canaries in the coal mines, the first to feel the effects and have to deal with them. Can we point fingers at specific blames or can we point fingers at who primarily caused this? Hell yes, because I think what we have to understand is that the science of climate change, is, it's like rocket science. It's very specific and exact. But the basics of what's happening and why it's happening is, is eighth grade, sixth grade mm-hmm. material. You can understand that. And what I explained to you about the source of the greenhouse gases and the rapid increase in greenhouse gases and what happens when those greenhouse gases trap too much of that outgoing heat, which is where we are now, They knew this. The fossil fuel industry knew this. They had the science down and they still continued to act as if it didn't matter. And so I remember back in 2012, 2013, Cleo was only a couple of years old and I was on a panel in New York City with the big boys, you know, the NOAA, the NASA, the Bloomberg risky business was coming out. And we were talking about adaptation and adaptation. Adaptation is dealing with the effects and hardening your infrastructure and raising your roads and Mm -hmm. all those good things. And I said, well, when are we going to start talking about mitigation? When are we going to start talking about fossil fuels and the source of these things? And the room kind of got quiet. And I said, well, we have to talk about it because if, if we think we can adapt our way out of this, we're wrong. And I think there were fossil fuel people in the room. And I just took that opportunity right there and said, look, this climate change is a human issue. It's a biodiversity issue. And those who are knowingly acting to put people, to continue to put us in harm's way, are guilty of crimes against humanity. And the whole room went, (gasps) and I said, what would you call it? When you know what you're doing is hurting the planet, the people, the biodiversity, and you continue to do it for your short-term profits, I want you at the Hague. 
I think we need new tribunals now for your role in crimes against humanity. So I think we need that sort of audacious calling it out for what it is to shame them into the good behavior that they need. Now, increasingly, we're starting to see younger people. You know, you describe yourself as a charming 50-something-year-old, but we're starting to see the emblem of climate action come from a younger audience, a younger, more engaged populace. Amen. Why is that? And should we trust that young populace? Absolutely. My, I think, well, Cleo wants to educate everybody, top down, bottom up. But my, my money's on the young people. My money is on the voice of young people who are unapologetic, mad as hell, and they don't understand why people with power will not act in their best interest. So I have been influenced by young people my whole life. So I want to spend my next 10 or 15 years just lighting fires in all you young people to make sure that you have a platform, that you know the facts, and the facts combined with your passion will give you the courage, the motivation to effect change like none before. I think Greta had a great deal to do with it. Greta Thunberg, who in in a really honest, unapologetic way, called out the people in charge of our great planet and our countries to stand up and take account and to stop talking about hope and looking at everything through rose-colored glasses. And she has motivated other young people to realize that they can effect change. We've always had a youth task force. We've always had rabid kids who really want to get out there. But the current movement is palpable. And I think that it's only just begun. Today, we are so happy to be joined by Jamie Margolin, a 17-year-old climate activist from Seattle, Washington. Jamie founded the organization This Is Zero Hour. Zero Hour is a youth-led advocacy group that works to drive climate action on a federal level. Jamie has testified before Congress with Greta Thunberg and calls herself the future president. Hi, Jamie. Thank you again for being here with us today. What is Zero Hour? Why is it called Zero Hour? How did it start? Please explain to us the story behind it. Pretty much the way it started is, well, we founded in 2017 because there was like this lack of like radical youth climate activism. It's not like now with the um, current school strike movement where it's a common thing for young people to be engaged on climate action. This is not something that was considered normal even back in 2016, 2017. When I started climate justice activism back in 2016, it was not cool. It was not something that the media would call you about. It was not something um, like cool or normal to be a young person engaged in climate action. And it wasn't a given like today where there were so many that it's when someone tells you they're a climate activist, it's not unheard of for a young person. And so there was this absence of youth climate mobilize. There were tons of youth climate organizations, but pretty much we were founded off of, I guess, I'd have to start off with my own personal story because as a founder of the movement, it's kind of what drove it. I was doing climate justice organizing locally in my city of Seattle for about a year before I started Zero Hour. And I felt the urgency. I was doing everything I could. I was organizing. I was mobilizing. I was doing absolutely everything I could. But people were not listening. And politicians weren't listening. And the media wasn't listening. And around 2017, there was... Hurricane Maria, there was there was Hurricane Harvey, um, all of these climate and natural disasters. There was 
all of this climate devastation, the fires in California, then there were these massive wildfires in southern Canada that blew over the city of Seattle and covered our city in a thick layer of smog. Um, and so it made it hard for me physically to breathe. And we'd never had a wildfire season before. This was climate-induced fires or worsened fires that were actually, like, affecting me and my community, but, but mostly, you know, people who had... Um, respiratory illnesses and things like that. Like I'm someone who does not have any respiratory illnesses or any chronic illnesses. And so it was just so much worse for people who did. Right. And it's interesting now to see that we're in 2019 and it's harming a lot more people now that we're seeing a lot of these extreme climate events coming to the forefront. And we're glad that now we know Zero Hour's mission and its name and its purpose is to inspire the urgent mobilization of young people. And we've read a lot about you and we're really impressed. Um, We know that you're a social advocate for many other issues, but why is climate the ultimate issue for you? After those wildfires and then Donald Trump pulled out the Paris, pulled the United States out of the Paris Climate Accord, there was just this need for like mass youth outrage about what was being done to our futures. So I posted on social media, like, let's have a youth climate march on Washington. Let's mobilize the young people. Let's do something about this because we have to act now. And I got one response from a girl named Nadia Nazar who, um, live in Baltimore and was following me on social media for a while. And that's really how it got, how Zero Hour got started is I noticed, I, I saw these climate disasters unraveling. There was a lack of a venue for like mainstream national youth climate mobilizing. That wasn't really a thing that much. And young people were mad that they just needed an outlet. So after that, I got together with Nadia via online and then a bunch of other young people as I continued posting and trying to get more people involved. And we built this organization called Zero Hour to organize these youth climate marches on July 21st of 2018 in Washington, D.C. and 25 cities around the world. So we were mobilizing, organizing, putting everything together for these big marches that ended up taking place, like I said, in 25 cities around the world. And we also had a Youth Climate Lobby Day in D.C. where we met with different senators, including Senator Bernie Sanders and all of all of these other prominent politicians, delivering our demands of no fossil fuel money and advocating for different climate legislation. So right. that's really how Zero Hour got our start. And then since then, we've just been mobilizing and organizing in every way possible, not just simply marching for the sake of marching, but strategically organizing for a just transition and solutions to the climate crisis that address the root systemic injustices that caused this problem in the first place. Climate change is the ultimate issue that I advocate for solutions towards because it is the grand culmination of all our societal injustices that have been building up for centuries. It's really the result of colonialism and patriarchy and racism and capitalism and all of everything wrong with all those systems that have just been building up. And so it's like the final boss almost of of everything wrong with our society. Climate change didn't just bring up like a daisy, like, oops, here we are. Now we have climate change. Um, it's it's something that, that we built towards. Solving the climate crisis is like solving all these other issues. It's a huge issue. It's, a, it's in, insanely huge as a crisis. And it sounds like as a young student who has just really just been thrown into the situation as a reason to fight for your future, it sounds like you didn't go into this necessarily with a bunch of experience in activism or political engagement. So 
when it comes to organizing the march and other things that you've handled, what are the largest ups and downs you've faced at a, as a climate activist? What are the biggest lessons you've learned being a student going into this learning as you go? Well, I guess really the biggest ups and downs of this and like the biggest lessons learned is like the actual act of mobilizing and organizing people is really like herding cats is what it's commonly told. It's very difficult. It's very messy. It never goes quite the way you plan. And then there's always people discouraging you from within and externally. There are people that you're going to disagree with within your organizing spaces um, who you're going to rub up against and, and things are just not going to go well. And then there are people externally. So really, it's just it's just it's a high stress situation where you're organizing about something that is not very happy. Um, and then there's the actual, you know, being a young organizer, actually balancing activism with school and with life and then the mental health aspects of, of a not having a lot of free time and b it just it's just something hard to think about and something frustrating that you even have to fight for like as a young person there's just all these psychological aspects that really make it very very difficult a lot of problems arise from the fact that you know not everyone will agree with us always and not everything is going to work out perfectly which is something that you addressed um However, we have seen the rise of a youth movement, maybe not to the extent that we've wanted to see it, though, and lots of cities participate more than others. Why aren't we seeing more young people on the streets? I feel like the goal shouldn't be how many young people can we possibly turn out to the streets. Like, I feel like there's been enough people that governments, if they were in their right mind and if corporations actually cared, would have gotten the hint and, and actually started taking action. I feel like it's not the responsibility of young people to be doing this and so the question shouldn't be why are more young people not protesting the question should be why are more government officials and more corporations not taking action and not reforming themselves and not like really passing legislation and lowering carbon emissions and protecting natural places and people from from these disasters and funding disaster relief and all of these other things it's, it's an interesting, I mean, I get what you're saying, and it's true that some cities have higher participation, and that's due to many reasons, um, and higher participation in climate action, that's due to many reasons. Maybe some places have more education or awareness than others. Some places are more traditionally conservative than others. Some places um, kids are, you know, more wealthy than others. They'll have more time and energy to do different things. Like, there's just a whole host of reasons, but that shouldn't be the, like, obviously we should try to engage as many people as possible but the goal is not to engage for the sake of engaging the goal is to to make those in power take action and it's not the kids responsibility from the perspective of a young person do you think that the rising climate movement will perhaps shift trends when it comes to civic engagement from young people in the country i think it's simply driving up civic engagement yes because more people will want to vote and pay attention to our elections and what's happening because they see that that this is, I mean, pardon the plug, but that this is your hour. And so they have to, they have to act and they have to vote and they have to, you know, I feel like as when there's this very blatant injustice, then people will want to make sure that those in power are not the ones who are continuing to perpetuate it. So as you guys, that's how you can feel like the rise of politicians like Alexander Ocasio-Cortez or Bernie Sanders' popularity with young people. Right. It's because we're flocking towards people who will, offer something different, totally. offer solutions. Right. So that's, I think it does lead to engagement. What would you tell anyone of any age and any background that cares about the climate crisis, but 
isn't compelled enough to be more civically engaged in the issue. I think the way to get moderates to act on this issue is pretty much just telling them that moderate, the, the actual act of being a moderate completely contradicts like the action that is needed. So with climate, if, if, if people are like very middle ground, very, you know, oh, I care about this, but I'm not going to take that leap. It's like just simply, I, I feel like if people are not willing to take that leap, it, it means that there's only a partial understanding of the climate crisis and further education needs to take place because there's an understanding of the science and then there's a true understanding of right. the gravity of the issue and how it affects people. And so with those people, you simply have to take, they're already on the fence. So what you have to do is it just takes a, you know, maybe bring them to just be like, humor me and come to one rally with me, tell them. And then maybe at that rally, they hear speakers that will, you know, tell some personal climate stories and really like take them over the edge of like, there is no gray area in survival. We have to do this. Like those people who are on the fence that, you know, just, just tell them if you're engaged, just like, you know, if they're your friend, just be like, humor me, come to this one panel with me, do this one. And usually like that, if there's that on the fence, then one good story or one, you know, one very truth telling eye opening documentary might be enough to push them over the edge. Thank you so much, Jamie. We appreciate all of your input and for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you so much for having me. House on Fire is brought to you by the Clio Institute, a local nonprofit organization that drives climate education in Miami, Florida. Please consider donating to fund our community programs. No amount is too little. This podcast is made possible by donors like you. To learn more about Clio, visit clioinstitute.org. Thanks for listening to House on Fire. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts and anywhere podcasts can be found. An All Points West production recorded at Unicorn Fire Radio in Miami.